We are moving on today in Hebrews. We're in chapter 5, making our way through Hebrews. Um, As I mentioned at the beginning of this gathering, life can be incredibly difficult sometimes. Uh, I believe that this has been absolutely amplified as we've been walking through this global pandemic. Uh, We also are facing many societal struggles. If you haven't noticed, we're coming up on another political season, which is exhausting even just thinking about. We have a host of relational issues in our lives. And all the while, we have sin in ourselves. We have pain. We have sickness. uh, That just never stops. And in the midst of all that's going on, I would venture to say that the last thing that we really want is someone to come and give us some trite saying or help us whip up some emotional, happy feeling to help us seem like everything's okay. What we need is somebody who can relate to us. That's what we want. We want someone who can step in to our struggles, who can sympathize with us appropriately, someone who can understand what it is that we're going through and help us bear those burdens. But eventually, we need even more than that. What we need is twofold. We need someone to compassionately and lovingly enter into our pains and also help us move forward, help us on our journey forward. Last week, uh, as we were finishing up chapter four, we learned that we have someone who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses, one who understands where we've been but handled the situation far better than we ever could, and that person is Jesus Christ. And it's so easy, so tempting to understand only up here what it is that Jesus has done for us, why he is a great high priest, why his life and his death and his resurrection accomplished our salvation, but it's hard day in and day out to live actually resting in this finished work. It's hard to follow and to obey him, to obey the will of God, especially in the midst of tough times, in the midst of our sin and our suffering, and the trials we face in this life. So we're going to take time today to unpack and examine what the end of chapter 4 was beginning to lay out, why Jesus is in fact our great high priest, and why we need him, how he relates to us, and how he also offers us the help that we need. And we will see how following the pattern of obedience that Christ laid before us Submitting our wills to God is the only path forward to lasting joy and salvation. So if you will, stand with me. We're going to be reading from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. If you don't have a Bible uh, on your way out, please grab one. We'd love to give you one just for free. And uh, we would hope that you would just plug into that and and dive in and uh, that God would, would teach you a lot. So we're in Hebrews chapter 5. It says this, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward because he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him 
who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we're thankful just for this day, uh, again, that we can gather. Uh, Pray that you would uh, open our hearts, our eyes to see uh, what it is that you would have for us to learn today from your word. I pray that the Holy Spirit would be working, changing hearts. For those who don't know you today, I ask that uh, they would come to faith in you and what Christ has accomplished. I pray that uh, for those of us who are feeling weary or anxious or fearful or walking through a time of sin, that we would just see that Christ offers our redemption and restoration that we need, Lord. Uh, we're thankful for this time. We're thankful for Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. Uh, so today we're going to look at two main points, just two, uh, what is required for the office of high priest, and then how Jesus fulfills that role perfectly to secure our eternal salvation. And along the way, we're going to notice some practical implications for our life in light of what Christ has done. So starting off, the office of high priest was different than the general priest in ancient Israel. The high priest would share in the activities of the other priests, which included leading of worship through offering sacrifices, through participating in various rituals. But what set him apart was that the high priest was the lone person who on the day of atonement would offer the sacrifice for the people. This is laid out in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 1 through 25. I'm not going to read all that to you, but if you want to go dive into what the high priest would do on the day of atonement, it's there. And what he would do is he would take two goats and a ram to sacrifice for the sins of the people of Israel. So after he casts, they would cast lots to see which goat would be offered to purify the tent of meeting. And then the other one was brought alive from the tent, and the high priest would lay his hands on the goat and confess the sins of the people on him and then send him out into the wilderness. This was meant to offer and give a picture of purifying both the tent of meeting, where the sacrifices were offered, where the people met God in Israel, and then to send the sins of the people away, to cast them out, to put them on the scapegoat. That's where we get the term scapegoat, right? So it's, uh, I was thinking actually about this example. uh, For any sports fans out there, baseball is back now. I don't know if anyone's tuned into that, but you're able to watch it, and there are a bunch of fake fans in the stands, and they pump in audience noises, which is kind of cool. But Steve Bartman, I believe his name was Steve Bartman, for Cubs fans, uh, is someone who was once a scapegoat. Uh, He, during the World Series, made a mistake and put his hands over the railing and knocked a ball. And the reality was, he did not cause the Cubs to lose that World Series. It was not his fault, but what all the people did was blame it on him. They put all of their blame on him and said, there's our scapegoat. 
and they sent him away. And he was in exile, literally. He hid out for years and years and years, and he's just now feeling more comfortable to even talk in public. So that was a good example of kind of what a scapegoat is, right? So the high priest would put those sins on that goat and send them out into the wilderness. Only the high priest of Israel had this special role. Only he could mediate between God and man in this way and offer these sacrifices for the sins of the people. And we see from our passage today that there are a couple of principles that must be present for the high priest. First, they must originate from among the people. They have to be a proper representative of the people that they offer the sacrifice for. So mainly this meant they had to be a human, and they had to be a human being from God's people, from the tribe of Israel. In Exodus 28.1, we see how the priests should be from among the people. This is God speaking to Moses, and he says, Then bring Aaron to you, or excuse me, then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. So here the author of Hebrews mentions in verse 1 that the high priest is chosen from among men to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So the high priesthood requires that they be someone from among the people in order to appropriately stand on the people's behalf. Now in verses 2 and 3, there are a couple interesting points that explain some aspects of these high priests. It says he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. We see here that the high priest can relate to the people at a very deep level. He can deal gently with the ignorant, gently with the wayward because he himself is beset with weakness. And if this is true of someone who would be a high priest in Israel, then what a picture it is of all of us and how we ought to relate to one another. You know, I think about dealing with, uh, with kids and there's a lot of ignorance and waywardness with them. And sometimes this ignorance leads to wrong actions. Uh, we, when my wife and I go to the park with Max over here, uh, we have to put him in his car seat. It's the law, and it also uh, keeps him safe. But he doesn't understand that that's what keeps him safe, and so he always fights it. And he tries to run into the car and run into our seats and climb in the back. And we say, bud, you don't understand. You're ignorant, and your disobedience is leading you astray. We're trying to help you, right? But we're able to deal, hopefully, most times, able to deal gently with him in that disobedience. But this passage is not talking about the actions that are done, done necessarily willfully and deliberately. Although as humans, I would argue that we can still deal very mercifully and graciously, but it doesn't mean we always have to be gentle if someone is deliberately sinning, right? We're called to call them to repentance lovingly but the fact remains the same. We can approach humbly and gently in most situations because we too need atonement for our sins. We are all sinners, every single one of us. We can't do enough good things. We can't do enough right things. 
We can't go through the proper religious channels in order to be justified before God. Essentially, what I'm trying to say is in and of ourselves, we just aren't that good. How often in your life, I know in my life absolutely, does uh, somebody else's ignorance or waywardness just drive you up a wall? You're like, how in the world do they keep doing this? Or how often does somebody's inability to do things the way you like or the way that you believe they ought to do things make you irritated and upset? In the family of God and the fellowship of believers, we have to be marked by gentleness. We have to have a general disposition that is gentle with one another. Marked by redemptive and restorative relationships. Redemptive relationships, meaning we seek to help people see what God is doing in their lives and help them understand what is offered through Christ, even in the midst of their sin and suffering. And restorative relationships, meaning we seek to mend what has been severed. We move towards people and we seek to bring things back to the way they were intended to be. Galatians 6 Verses 1 through 3 says, Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So we're called to bear burdens, gently seeking to restore those who are caught in any transgression. But we have to be watchful for ourselves because it's tempting to fall into these same transgressions and it's tempting to start thinking that we are something. Do you ever do something good and think to yourself, man, you know what? I'm pretty special. I'm pretty good. It's a good thing that these people have me. You know, it's like, it's like an example of you walking down the street. We've all done this. We walk down the street and there's the storefronts and the cars and we kind of just, we're going on a mission and we just kind of check ourselves out, you know? We walk by the car and we're like, oh, yeah, not too bad. That's what we do. We do that in our life when we're caring for people. But we are nothing special because when we zoom back and we look at ourselves, we know that we are completely prone the same transgressions, we are just as ignorant as everybody else and in need of grace as everybody else. We desperately need someone to bear our burdens, to deal gently with us. We are like the description of the human high priest who's like every other Israelite, beset with weakness, who also need a sacrifice for our sins. So the high priest we see comes from among the people, beset with weakness. And the other aspect we see regarding the high priest requires that he be called by God to this service. It's not something that someone just says, hey, I'm going to do it. I'm going to step into this role. He is called by God, divinely appointed. God brought about this role, as we read in Exodus 28, when he established the priesthood in the Levitical lineage, when he called Aaron to be a priest. And everyone after that must either be a descendant or especially called by God in order to be an appropriate representative in that position. Again, it's another allusion to the fact that we are pretty powerless. God must call us 
to himself. All of us. And when we realize this, it places us into a position of humility. So we see there's two qualifications for this role of high priest. Human, called by God. But it's interesting that the author of Hebrews lays out verses one through four first in this exposition of laying out what a high priest does and how Christ fulfilled that. He's giving this quick overview and showing that although humans have held this position, somebody greater than ourselves is needed. Someone greater than ourselves is necessary to actually do it adequately. No human could fulfill this, this role of high priest perfectly, which is why they still needed to have a sacrifice for their own sins. We need a high priest that can both identify with us and at the same time, a high priest who is distinct in their sinlessness and in their authority to really help us come before God. The ability to sympathize with one another and be gentle is one thing. We can do that well. But we don't have the power to help people move forward and be free from their sin and their temptation. So enter Jesus Christ. The rest of this passage lays out while Christ how Christ fulfills these two requirements. But not only how he fulfills them, but how he goes way beyond what the requirements are to be the great high priest that we need. So starting in verse five, the author works in a reverse fashion. Beforehand, we read that the high priest must be from among the people. And then it says he also must be appointed by God. But now when Christ is introduced, it starts with his appointment. It shows how he is divinely appointed to this role. And we get two quotes from two separate psalms. And these two quotes are both kind of power play quotes, right? They're showing that Jesus is far superior in his divine appointment over anyone else. They lay out his uniqueness and his power over any other person. So the first is from Psalm 2-7. We've already quoted that. Hebrews has already quoted this in chapter one, chapter one, verse five. And it says, you're my son, today I have begotten you. This is the claim that Jesus is the son of God. That's a pretty big claim. He is God in the flesh among people, God himself, equal to God the Father. Then we get a quote from Psalm 110.4. It says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're gonna get to Melchizedek here in chapter seven, so I don't wanna touch on it too much, uh, so as to not confuse you. But Melchizedek is only mentioned in two places throughout the scriptures, other than Hebrews here. It's in Psalm 110 and Genesis 14, 18. Melchizedek was the king of Salem. And his name means in Hebrew, king of righteousness. And Salem, which is identified with Jerusalem, means peace. It shares the same root, for, root word for the word Shalom, Salem. In the Bible, there is not a genealogy of Melchizedek. He has no beginning. He has no end of life recorded, but he is both king and high priest of Salem. David, King David, eventually becomes the ruler of Jerusalem. We see this in 2 Samuel 5. And he and his heirs become successors of the kingship of Melchizedek and also the high priest reign. So the promised king, Jesus, from the line of David, was also the continual priest from the order of Melchizedek. All of this to say Jesus is the greater Melchizedek, 
the forever priest and king. The one who has no beginning, no end. The one who all the kings and priests in ancient Israel and all the prophets too point to, never live up to. This is who Jesus is and shows the authority he has from God. He is the son of God who is our priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And I know that that can seem a little confusing. There's a lot of allusions to the Old Testament in Hebrews, and we're gonna continue to unpack that here in a few weeks. But I think it's just really, really interesting and beautiful to see how Jesus fulfills every prophecy, every promise from the Old Testament. The author is saying here, Jesus was not just appointed by God to be the high priest, but as God himself and comes from a line that is more sufficient than the Levitical priesthood. So Jesus was divinely appointed. But what's maybe even more comforting for us, I believe, is that he was also able to identify with those whom he represented. Back in Hebrews 4.15, we read, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in, every, who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. This is elaborated on here in uh, 5, 7, and 8, and we get this great confidence in what Jesus faced and accomplished for us. It says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus is described by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 as a man of sorrows. It says there that he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. All the grief and the sorrow that you have, if you're in Christ, he carried that for you. Jesus was God Incarnate, God in the flesh, in this mystery we cannot fully understand, he came on earth as both fully God and fully man. He was the great high priest who came from among the people, but the only one, the first high priest, who did not himself need to atone for his own sinfulness because he was sinless. The author of Hebrews doesn't mention anything about Jesus being able to be gentle with us because of any sinfulness on our part, but we read he still did suffer with immense temptation and pain in his life here on earth. He understood what it means to go through deep temptation and yet do it without sin. I was trying this week to think about what that might even be like, and I can't even fathom it. To be tempted and not even have the thought of sin. It's not something that we understand. When we read about Jesus offering up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, our mind often goes, and I believe it's alluding to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus went before he was delivered to be crucified. And while this is absolutely the instance where he faces the toughest tears and he is crying out the most. It's not the only time he wrestled with wanting to be delivered from death. Verse seven mentions in the days of his flesh. I think we can take that to mean that this was an occurrence that he dealt with throughout his life, but it culminated in Gethsemane. 
when he began his path to the cross. Jesus went through his whole life following the will of his Father obediently and completely. Even in the midst of pain and suffering and temptation that we've not even come close to in our lifetimes. There's a great book by Dane Ortland called uh, Gentle and Lowly. I believe it came out this year. and uh, It talks about Christ's heart towards sinners and towards sufferers. And he expounds on this obedience when he quotes C.S. Lewis, a quote from Mere Christianity. And he uses this analogy of our temptations we face being like a person walking against the wind. And Lewis says, you find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. And a man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. So this wind just gets stronger and stronger on us as we move forward. And most of us, well, all of us, at some point have to lay down in this temptation. We sin eventually. Jesus is the only one who was able to walk forward without ever laying down in the midst of temptation, without ever stumbling. He knows what temptation means without wavering. He knows what it means to face it without stumbling. He never once in the midst of them went against the will of his father. The struggle of the will is something that we all face, something that is all, it's present in all of our lives. We all have a will, a desire to do something that we want to do. A clear picture of this is found in kids. Uh, We we know that you don't have to teach a kid to persist in getting what they want. There comes a point after the sweet, sweet infancy stage where they all of a sudden start to talk. And in this talking, we learn that they have desires, This gets enhanced as they mature, and if you're a parent of a toddler or a teenager around them, you can say amen at this point. But while we give kids a hard time, adults, we are not exempt. We just happen to have more socially acceptable ways of getting our way and expressing these wills. We don't tend to live under the roof we were raised in, so this feeling of autonomy seems greater as we get older, And the lack of direct authority in our lives at the human level seems to mean that we don't have any authority over us. In the Christian life, we have a loving father, a loving parent who understands exactly what it is that we need, exactly what is best for us, exactly what will bring us into a joyful, abundant life now and in eternity. A loving father who has a will that's meant to bring himself glory and simultaneously create in us joy as we walk in new life through the life of Jesus Christ. And thankfully, Jesus followed God's will perfectly because we could never do it ourselves. Even when Jesus asked if things could be different, he obeyed the will of God the Father, never sinning, but absolutely tempted to do so. Jesus' path of life was one of suffering, perfect obedience, and endurance. And it culminates in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in Luke 22, 42 through 44, he says, Father, this is Jesus speaking, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. 
Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So Jesus asks here, if it's in his Father's will, if there could be a different way. He's wondering, can there be a different way to fulfill this mission I've set out to do? Christ laid down specific aspects of his divinity to walk this human life in our place while remaining fully God. And he remained completely faithful. And up to this point in Hebrews, the author places all of this emphasis on this exalted status of Christ. But now he's reminding us of the path he walked for you and for me. This life is not easy. Many times very, very difficult. The world battles against us, presses in on us. Our own flesh seeks to lead us astray. And something that we often forget is we have an enemy, Satan, who seeks to deceive us, to distract us, to discourage us, and to whisper in our ears and cause distance between us relationally, both at the human level and between us and God. It can be tempting to believe, well, once I put my faith in Christ, excuse me, in Christ, life should be easy. We should be comfortable. We should be prosperous. But it's just not the case. Jesus says in John 16, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. We understand, we see in verse nine, we're supposed to obey him. We don't like that. We don't like that we have to obey him in our sinfulness. We don't like it unless we're going to be led through the Garden of Eden, right? We like the Garden of Eden, walking with God in the cool of the day. That sounds nice. But the Garden of Gethsemane, we don't want to go there. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of a, like a painting of the Garden of Gethsemane, but usually what it, what it is is it's this picture of kind of a Western Eurocentric looking Jesus and he's bathed in this soft glow and he's just kind of chilling there. And I don't think it was anything like that at all. That's not the picture I see of Jesus in Gethsemane. He's in agony. I picture him on the floor, in the dirt, crying, sweating what seemed to be like drops of blood, sweating blood, and yet he remained obedient. So my question practically to us today is where are we struggling to follow God's will? On this side of the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to be battling this, this battle between our will and God's will till we pass on from this life. Maybe it's your vocation, maybe your work. You're asking, is this what I'm supposed to be doing with my life? Maybe you're struggling as you strive to gain comfort and material wealth. What a temptation. Maybe you're being called into a hard conversation with somebody and you're resisting it. A relationship that you have that has gone south and you know that you need to be the one to intentionally walk forward on the path of restoration. But it's going to be hard and it's going to be sanctifying. Maybe this pandemic has exposed that you would rather stay home and do whatever you want instead of sacrificing time, treasure, and gifting in the community of Christ. 
staying home can sure be easier. And I'm going to pause real quick because I'm going to take a lesson that I learned from Hebrews chapter 5 here and deal gently with everyone because me, myself, I also deal with that same temptation. I wrestle with it. Wouldn't it just be easier to just stay away for a while? And sometimes we need to, so don't hear me saying that. There is a pandemic and we don't want to put people at risk. But there's that temptation that creeps in and says, well, maybe this is something I'll do for years. We have to battle against that. I imagine often if Christ took the easy route, he didn't, spoiler alert, thankfully. He walked the path that none of us could. Perfect obedience through immense suffering with complete surrender to his Father's will, even though he himself had one, but he obeyed God. Verse 9 and 10 says, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't perfect. The word there is signifying more this idea of bringing to completion. Christ was perfect, but as he walked the path of obedience, he was completing the mission that he had to fulfill. Jesus in his suffering and his obedience and endurance became the source of eternal, eternal salvation to all who obey him and believe. So there's still this call to enjoy this grace we've received and let that move us to obedience. But we have to understand that it comes from grace alone first. This requires daily seeking what God's will for our lives are. In every moment, God uses his word and he so, so often uses others in our lives to help make his will known. Christ is the better high priest. Christ was divinely appointed came from among the people, but unlike human priests was sinless, obedient, following God's will, and he secured our salvation. So all we have to do is trust in him and trust that he took our sin upon himself and rest in that finished work and enjoy the eternal salvation that he accomplished for us. So if you don't know him today, I want you to know that he offers that to you. And we'll have pastors and prayer responders out here after we uh, take communion who would love to talk with you about that. If you do know him today, then remember in the midst of everything we face, Christ has walked through that and walks with you in that. Let's pray. Lord God, we're thankful that you sent Christ to walk uh, as fully God and as fully man in our place. And we thank you that he took the wrath that we deserve for our sin. We ask, Lord, that uh, as we go from here, you would just convict us of the ways where we put our will over yours. Convict us of the ways that we seek our own desires before you, Lord, before what you would have for us. I pray that you would just encourage us to be in one another's lives, to be in your word and in prayer so that we can constantly walk with you, trusting that Christ's obedience 
has made the way for us to also walk in obedience, Lord. We're thankful for your grace, for your mercy. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.